You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, verse 26 and 27, if you want to turn there, that would be helpful for you to have that out and open on your lap, Genesis chapter 1. And while you're turning there, these are always some of my favorite days. Um, They just are visible reminders of me of how kind the Lord has been to us. Um, you know, I, I say this often in moments like this, but it's, unless you were there in the early days of Stonegate, you know, you ha- you, it's just impossible for you to know how unlikely this right here is. So impossible for you to know that. And so it's just a visible reminder that we have a God who is so kind and so merciful. And we also have our kiddos in the service. Uh, we have preschool going zero through four years old, which means our five-year-old through fifth graders who would normally be an age-appropriate um, you know, things this morning are now in here with us. So for our kiddos that are in the room, it is such a blessing to have you. There's one right there. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is God's word. I was meeting with a man several years ago, and this has happened repeatedly over the course of a decade and a half of ministry. I was meeting with this guy, and he was in the process of absolutely wrecking his life. He was walking out on his marriage. I mean, it was just an absolute disaster, just a wake of destruction behind him. And so at one point, I asked, why are you doing this? Why why are you doing this? And here was his response in that moment. I am trying to find myself. Now, finding yourself is a big thing. It's an end thing. You've probably heard some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of a phrase that expresses that when people are going crazy in their life. You've likely heard something in in that genre of things. And here's the deal. When it comes to finding yourself, I don't really have a problem with the desire to find yourself. I think that's that's a human desire post-Genesis 3 is to find yourself. The problem is in how people go about trying to find themselves. That's the issue. And the scriptures could not be more clear that the only way to find yourself is to find and know God. I want to say that one more time. Because the truth is, many of us in the room right now probably have something inside of us where we're looking at our life and it's just not going the way we want it to go. And there is some feeling welling up in us of, man, something's got to change. I've got to go find myself. There's nothing wrong with that feeling as long as that feeling takes you to finding and knowing God. That's the only way you will ever find yourself is to find and know God. Now, this text in particular this morning in Genesis chapter 1 shows us this truth. It's in finding and knowing God that we then find and know ourselves. This is one of the main things this text is going to show us this morning. It's in finding and knowing God That God then says, okay, now you can actually see who you are, who I've created you to be. So we're going to take this in two parts this morning. Part one, who is God? Part two, who are we? Part one, who is God? Part two, who are we? So we're going to start with question one. Who is God? Now, this particular text, and by the way, anytime you open the Bible and read it, we're on a Bible reading plan right now, all of our church family together. Anytime you open the Bible, this is always such a great question for you to ask every time you read the Bible. What does this show me about God? Who is God in light of what I have just read? So so when you ask that question in this particular text in Genesis 1, 
we find some things in this text it's showing us about God that are absolutely crucial. I mean, they could not be more important. And here's what we find. We find, to the answer to this question, who is God, we find this text telling us in Genesis 1.26 that God is triune. Now, now look at verse 26 again. Then God said, let us, not just let me, not, it's not a singular issue here, it's a plural issue. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's not my likeness, it's our likeness. So what this text is showing us is that there is plurality to God, that God is triune. Now, a couple of things about the Trinity. The Trinity isn't a footnote to Christianity. It is foundational to Christianity. It lies deep down there at the bedrock of Christianity. In other words, if the God you worship isn't triune, then the God you worship isn't the God of the Bible. So, so it's, not, it's not, you know, a footnote. It's, it's not some peripheral issue. This is bedrock sort of issues. It's foundational sort of issues. And when you're thinking about the Trinity, it's not just for like the heady theological types of people. It's for all of us in the room. If you're a Christian, thinking about your God is for you. Thinking about your God rightly, thinking big biblical thoughts of God, that's for you. And when we take time to reflect on the Trinity, the triune nature of God, we, we begin to discover that the Trinity, the triune nature of God, begins to explode with a million implications for our life. So, so I, I want to just spend a few minutes thinking through this with you. What does it mean for God to be triune? And let's start with the definition, the Trinity defined. Let me just give you a working definition of the Trinity. It'll be on the screen for you. When we say the word Trinity, here's what we're saying. We're saying that God, or that God is triune. We're saying that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and yet at the same time, there is one God. Makes perfect sense, right? We're all there. Okay, good. So let me break that down into three parts. Part one, God is three person. He exists in plurality, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. So it's not as if there is, you know, one God who just appears in several different ways. That They're distinct people. Each one of these people that make up the Godhead, the triune God, is fully God. And yet at the same time, there is one God. One God, three distinct persons. Each one of those distinct persons are fully God. Now, when it comes to the word Trinity, we never see that word individual, you know, in particular, appear in the Bible. That word Trinity is used to describe, it's a word that we have used, a theological word that we use to describe what we see in the Bible. See the difference? It's not, you're not going to like flip to the concordance and find Trinity in the Bible. But it's a word that theologians have used to describe what it is that we do see in the Bible. So in the Old Testament, we have the partial revelation of the Trinity in passages like we're reading this morning. When it's saying, let us, or our image, it's showing us, it's, it's leading us to this place of knowing that there is a plurality in the nature of God. Yes, there's one God, but there is a plurality to this God. In the New Testament, we see the complete revelation. So in the New Testament, it is very clear each part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are talked about distinct from one another. Yet at the same time in the New Testament, they are affirmed as each of them being fully God. And at the same time in the New Testament, it is very clear that there is just one God. The New Testament gives us all of those things. So the word Trinity is our word to describe that reality that we see in the scriptures as it reveals to us God. Now, I want to spend just a few minutes now with you thinking about this Trinity. The Trinity described, thinking about how does, how does the Trinity work? What, what, what is going on in this triune God, Father, Son, and, and Spirit? And let me start with a quote from Fred Sanders. He wrote a, wrote a book called The Deep Things of God. 
how the Trinity changes everything. If you've never read a book on the Trinity, this would be a great place to start. It's a small, easy read, and uh, it just shows you the millions of implications that come from, from God being triune. But listen to what he says. This is going to be on the screen for you. He says, In himself and without any reference to a created world or the plan of salvation, God is that being who exists as the triune love of the Father for the Son and the unity of the Spirit. And then listen to how he describes this triune God, how it interacts with one another, the inner workings of this triune God. He says, the boundless life that God lives in himself, the boundless life that God lives in himself, at home, and I love this imagery, within the happy land of the Trinity, above all worlds, is perfect. This, the way that the God the Father, God the Son interact with each other, it's perfect. It is complete. It's inexhaustibly full and infinitely blessed. Now, when we think about God, it's important that we think these sort of big biblical thoughts of God, that, that God is eternal, that he has always existed. And this eternal God has always existed in Father, Son, and Spirit as a triune God. And then the inner workings of this God, how, how this God interacts with himself. So this is irrespective of you. It's irrespective of God creating a world. It's irrespective of redemption that we have all greatly benefited from. This is just who God is in and of himself. It says that this God, he, he is perfect. It, boundless life flows from this God. I love the imagery that he used. He says, if you picture God as a territory or a land, inside the land that would be God, it is a happy land. He's always happy. He's perfect. It's inexhaustibly full. It's infinitely blessed, infinitely happy. This is the way the Bible describes God. Infinitely, he never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. Always infinitely happy. You know, part of how we learn about the inner workings of the Trinity is not by specific teaching about it in the scriptures, but just by us overhearing how the Father and Son and Spirit interact with each other. So we, we learn most by eavesdropping in the Bible. So you see this in Mark chapter 1. This is at the baptism of Jesus where there's a voice from the Father that thunders down out of heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The, the Father is pronouncing over his Son's life, I love you, Jesus. I, the Son, I, I love you. I delight in you. Man, I, man, I am pleased with you. So we, we learn most by eavesdropping like this. Probably the best place in the Bible to see this is John 17. I'm just going to read a, a few of the kind of excerpts from John 17. It should be on the screen for you. And just listen to how the father and, and son interact with one another. We're just eavesdropping here. We're overhearing this conversation. Listen to how it goes. John 17, starting in verse 1, says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that, that the son may glorify you. Do you see how that's working? The son's saying, glorify your son. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to glorify you. Verse 4, it says this. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have had with you before the world existed. Coming down to verse 22 in John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you, Father, have given me, because you, Father, love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. The Son is saying, I'm going to make sure they know who you are, and I will continue to make your name known to them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So do you see what's happening here? We're just hearing that, that kind of this inner workings. We're overhearing this conversation of the son saying, Father, I'm going to glorify you. And then the father saying, no, son, I'm going to glorify you. And the father saying, son, I love you. And the son saying, no, father, I love you. And the father looking back at the son saying, no, I love loving you, son. And the son looking back at the father saying, no, I love loving you. Do you see this sort of boundless, perfect life that exists within the triune God? And we know that the Spirit is in on this as well. In Mark 1, the Spirit falls on Jesus and begins to empower Jesus for ministry, supports Jesus in his ministry, leads Jesus in his ministry. In John 16, verses 13 and 14, we know the Spirit's role in the world. The Spirit's primary role is to show the world the glory of the Father and the Son. This is what the Spirit's primary task is. I love how J.I. Packer Um, describes the Spirit's role. He describes the Spirit's role as a floodlight ministry. In other words, if, if the world is over there and Jesus and the Father are over here, so the world there, like all of us there, the Father and Son over here, that the Spirit sits in between the world and the Father and Son and with this floodlight ministry, you can't even see him, He's buried down here, but he's just shining this light on the Father and Son so that the world, so that you and I can actually see compelling and convincing views of Jesus. This is the Spirit's role. Do you see this inner working that's going on between the Spirit and the Father and the Son? If we want to summarize it, we could say it this way. The Bible shows us that God the Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed in a community of love. It's how they have always existed. Each person within the triune God revolving around one another, heaping love and glory on one another in what C.S. Lewis called the dance. This this is how the Trinity is described. No one, no part of the Godhead, Father, Son, or Spirit, is looking at the other parts of the Godhead and saying, you need to make sure you give me mine. No one's saying that. Every part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit is looking at the others in the Godhead and saying, let me make sure I give you yours. I want to make sure you get your glory. I want to make sure you give your love. It's this others-focused, beautiful relationship, this community of love that has always existed between Father, Son, and Spirit. Now comes the question, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Answer, it has everything to do with everything. I love how one guy said it. He said, the Trinity lurks in every earthly shadow. There is not one thing you're going to look at on on this planet in God's creation that does not have the marks of the Trinity, the the nature of the triune God somewhere embedded into it. It has everything to do with everything, including you. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us, this is the triune God, this God who exists in perfect community, Let us make man in our image. So there is something about the nature of God that now is embedded into you. After our likeness, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, the answer to the question, who is God, is deeply insightful to the question, who are we? If you want to know who you are, 
we first have to know who God is. So let's take part two. Who are we? When it's talking about us being made in the image of God, it is cluing us into two things, both purpose and design. It's, when it says that you are made in the image of God, it is showing us something about the reason that God made us. We are meant by God to be image reflectors of God. Pe- people who would represent and reflect an accurate picture of God to the world. So, so we're meant to be image bearers in that sense of God. But it's not just showing us our purpose, it's also showing us our design, the, the way that God created us. It's showing us how God has hardwired us. So so when we're thinking about that question, how God has hardwired us, being made in the image of God is showing us that although we are unlike God in very significant ways, right? We are unlike God in many very important ways. We are not all powerful. No one in this room is all knowing, right? Your husband may think he is, but he's not, right? No, No one in this room is all knowing. So we're unlike God in very significant ways, but we are also like God in very significant ways. Now we could talk about a million ways that we are like God made in his image, but here is one profound way that I just wanna explore with you this morning. Who are we? One answer that we could give to that question is this. We are communal creatures. We are communal creatures. Being made in the image of the triune God means that you and I are hardwired for relationships. That, that you are communal, you're a communal person. We're, we're societal people. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's part of how God has made us. The reality of the Trinity means, listen to this, that you cannot thrive on your own. I'm gonna say that one more time. The reality of the Trinity means that you cannot thrive on your own. It's impossible for you to thrive on your own. You cannot do it. A human being cannot flourish all by themselves. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We are communal creatures. Listen to Bruce Ware talk about this. He also wrote a book on the Trinity called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to how he says this. You have to listen closely. It's a longer quote. He says, we are made in the image of God so we can live rightly and best Only when we mirror in our relationships the relationship true of the eternal God himself. In other words, we can only live best when we are imaging God. If he's communal, we've got to be communal. Yes, we are called to be like God in character. But we are also called to be like God in relationship with one another. To miss this, to miss this communal nature of God, meaning that we're also communal in nature. To miss this is to miss part of the wonder of human life. And it stems from failing to see something more of the wonder of God himself, namely his triune nature. The very fact that God, though singular in nature, one person, or one God, is plural and communal in persons, three persons, indicates that we should not view ourselves as isolated individuals who happen to exist in close proximity to others. I'm going to read that last part one more time. It means that we should not view ourselves as isolated individuals who just sort of happen to exist in close proximity to others. But we should view ourselves this way, as interconnected, interdependent, relational persons in community. That's how we should view ourselves. We're not just people who happen to like gather in a room like this. No, we're people who are designed by God to live in a web of relationships where we are interdependent upon one another. He goes on, it is not enough to just exist together alongside but independent of other other people. 
along the lines of how guys live in a dorm room. So think about how guys live in a dorm room, he says. They share space with other guys whom they just pass in the hall or see across the room. They exist in close proximity, perhaps, but, but is there really a relationship of community? Answer, probably not. Most of the guys in that dorm you're not interconnected with, you're not, you know, in a web of relationships with. He goes on. God intends that, uh, that there be a created community of persons called the church in which there is an interconnection and interdependence so that what one does affects another. What one needs can be supplied by another, and what one seeks to accomplish may be assisted by another. Living in isolation with the pretense of autonomy is, of course, the American way. And you can see just how deeply our culture fights against this communal sort of thing that the Bible pushes for. Our heroes are those, those rugged individuals like the Lone Ranger or Superman or Rambo who can do everything themselves and need no one's help. But when we insist on going solo, hear this, when we insist on going solo, living these isolated lives, when we insist on going solo, we are essentially rejecting God's plan for how we should live with one another. When we refuse to be in relationships of accountability and interdependence with one another, we are choosing to live in violation of God's created design. In other words, if right now you are not in deeply embedded, kind of interwoven, interdependent relationships with other people, it means that you are living in such a way where you are violating the way that God has designed you. Now, this is part of what it means in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, 18, when the Lord says, it's not good for man to be alone. That is not good for you to be alone. This is the reason he has created marriage. It's the reason by grace he has recreated a church, a community of people. He's saying it's not good for you to be alone. We talk about community a lot around here. We talk about a lot of the reasons that we need it. I mean, right, we could go down the list of things that we need community because we don't see ourselves accurately. Like we all have blind spots in our life. Blind spots are similar to bad breath. We all need people to help us know it's there, right? That's for you. That's for me. Like if we want to see ourselves accurately, we need people who will love us enough to help us see ourselves accurately. We need people to grow. And listen to this. Unless you are 100% satisfied with where you are right now in your life, and if that's you, it goes back to the first one. You're just not seeing yourself very accurately. But unless you are 100% satisfied with who you are right now in your life, you need people. You're, we could say it this way. We all know that, that we need time to grow. But a lot of us have just failed to compute that we also need people if we're ever going to grow into maturity in Jesus. So we need uh, people to see ourselves accurately. We need community to grow. We need community for encouragement. Man, life is hard, isn't it? Jobs can be hard. Family can be hard. Friendship, I mean, all of these things can just be hard. Really, really hard. And you need people to encourage you. I need people to encourage me. That is what community in the Bible is designed to be. It's designed to be that, that encouragement in our life. We all need community in this room. We're communal creatures. This is the way that God has designed us. Now, here comes the warning. A couple of things about community here. Warning is community is really, really hard. Can we all get an amen to that? Community is hard. It is really hard. People sin against you, you sin against people. You hurt their feelings, they hurt your feelings. They're too sensitive, you're too sensitive. We could just go down the, the list of things. It is hard. And here's the reason, the primary reason that community is hard. It's because of sin. Sin at its core is antisocial. 
at its core, what sin does is make everyone individuals who are living their own siloed lives, doing their own little thing. That is what sin does. It's antisocial at the core. Um, the way that uh, a lot of the early church fathers used to describe sin is they would say it this way, that, that sin has a way of curving yourself back in on yourself. So rather than being bent out toward God and other people living in relationships of love out there in community, rather than doing that, sin has this way of curving our life back in on ourselves, where the only thing we can see and think of is ourselves. That this is your problem with community. It's my problem with community. It's our problem with community. It's called sin. It is hard. It makes community really hard. Now, one of the ways that we have used in the past to describe the difficulty of community is something we call cruddy valley. And periodically, I like to throw it back in. And here's the reason I like to periodically throw it back in. It's because when we need it most, we are prone to forget it. So we just need a continual reminder periodically of Cruddy Valley. If you look up on the screen, you'll see what I'm talking about. So on the screen, I think, <coughs> there's Family Mountain. Family Mountain is the destination we're all going for. Family Mountain is us as a church family actually living like the family that the good news of Jesus has created us to be. That Jesus died and was raised from the dead to make us. It's living like the family that we're meant to be. So it's living in these interdependent communal relationships with one another. That's Family Mountain. Now the journey to Family Mountain is where the difficulty is. So it starts all the way back here with interesting. This is that moment when you look across a room like this or you meet a person in a room like this and you have that first thought that goes like this. They're interesting. And they're just interesting enough that I'm going to take one extra step toward them to get to know them. And once you take that one extra step to get to know them, you find that they are also cool. There it is. Whatever cool is, they've got it. They're just cool. They're, just cool. they're intriguing enough for you to think, man, if I'm going to be friends with somebody out there, that's somebody I'm going to be a friend with. So, so they're cool. They're interesting. They get to cool. So, so you're thinking, I'm going to take another step toward them. And you take that next step toward them. And that's when you get to Awesome Hill. Awesome Hill is that point in any relationship wh where when you talk about them, it's all with the highest praise. When you talk about them, they are literally awesome. I mean, they, 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 they just, they're doing it for you. I mean, they, they are great. And here's the thing about Awesome Hill. When you're at Awesome Hill in a relationship, here's what you know about them and here's what you don't know about them. You're still in the superficial phases of relationships. At Awesome Hill, you're looking at them and all you know at this point is the good in them. It's called like the first six months of dating, right? You just know the good in them. You have no idea of all of the baggage, all of the sin that they're bringing to the table. And at the moment when you first discover, wow, this person isn't Jesus, like they're at... That they're actually bringing sin to the table. That's the moment you fall into Cruddy Valley. There it is right there. That's the fall that many of us have experienced in this room, right? It's that moment when you realize this person is not Jesus, right? This person is sinful, much like yourself. This person is very self-absorbed, much like yourself. This person has a very difficult time of thinking about other people above their self, just like yourself. It's that moment when you realize that this person is really, really sinful, it's that moment, that, that's Cruddy Valley. Now what happens in Cruddy Valley for most people is the moment we fall off the cliff and we hit the bottoms of Cruddy Valley, and listen, we have all discovered that there's actually a couple of layers below Cruddy Valley, like Crappy Valley, and it gets even worse from there. I mean, we, we've discovered that. And, and once you hit those places, here's what happens to all of us. We reflexively say, there is no way I'm staying in Cruddy Valley with that person. They're not worth it. They're a jerk. 
They're an idiot. They're, they're all of those. There's no way I'm staying in here. So what reflexively happens is we just quietly withdraw from that person and we go find another person that's interesting and cool. And then we get on Awesome Hill with them and they aren't Jesus. And we fall back into Cruddy Valley. And here we are again. And what we reflexively do is we pull back there and we find another person that's interesting and cool and we get to Awesome Hill. And welcome to the reason that most relationships in churches are very superficial. We never make it past Awesome Hill. We never get there. And what happens for a lot of people is once you go through like all the rounds of the church, like you can do that for a while now at Stonegate because we're big enough. But once you kind of make it through all the social circles you can get through, then you're like, man, this whole, I'm in credit value with the whole church now. So I'm going to go find another church and I'm going to get in kind of this interesting thing and cool and I'm going to get on Awesome Hill with them. And we just repeat the cycle over and over and over again. But for a few in the room, you, you, know, you, you hit Cruddy Valley and that's not a shock or a surprise to you. That's an expectation for you because you know you're actually trying to live, you know, love people who are really, really sinful. They're not Jesus. They're going to hurt you just like you're going to hurt them. And so it's an expectation that you're carrying into that moment. So rather than running in that moment, you're praying for the Lord to give you the patience that you need, the long suffering that you need, the resilient hope that you need to stick in them even when you're in Cruddy Valley so that eventually you can begin that long trek up the mountain from Cruddy Valley with them up to Family Mountain. And Family Mountain is a destination we're all trying to get to, Right? That, that's where we're actually like, we're, we're practically living like in what God has positionally made us. We're actually becoming the family that he has made us already. That, that's where we're headed. Now, let me just point out one observation from Cruddy Valley. If you could just picture yourself at the front of the trail, like you're here and you're looking down the trail. I think it's just important to realize that it looks like from the beginning of the trail that, that Awesome Hill is just one small step away from Family Mountain. That it would just take you one small step and you're going to beat a family mountain. It's going to be that easy for you. But hear me, you will never get to Family Mountain apart from a fall into Cruddy Valley. It will never happen. And here's the reason. The people you are trying to get to Family Mountain with are all really, really, really sinful people. If you're not willing to endure Cruddy Valley with people, you will never get to Family Mountain with people. That's just the way it works. So as a church family, can we just make this commitment that when we fall into Cruddy Valley, we're gonna be patient in there and we're gonna be hope-filled in there. We're gonna work in there. We're gonna speak the truth and love in there and we're gonna do whatever it takes, however long it takes to begin that long trek up the family mountain together. Can we just make that commitment? But this is the difficulty with community. It is hard because loving real people is hard because they are all, including you, really, really sinful. That's what makes it so, so hard. And let me kind of finish here with community, this last kind of aspect of community. Community has to be pursued. It's not just that community is hard. It's that community has to be pursued. Or maybe you could say it this way. It's because community is hard that community has to be pursued. You're not just going to wake up one day and find yourself in deep community with other people. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to pursue that. You're going to have to run after that. And let me give you three quick ways that you can proactively pursue community in your life. Way number one. Way number one is to pursue home groups. To pursue home groups. Home groups are the way at this church family that we have designed and created an intentional environment for you to be able to develop community. Now, let's be clear on this. 
going to a home group doesn't equate into you living in community. You can go to a home group and stiff arm people for years if you want to. Not let people in your life for years if you want to. Not open up to people for years if you want to. But on the other side of that, if you are in that moment this morning of saying, I want to reflect the triune nature of God by living in community. I'm in for that. So I'm going to start pursuing that. Home groups are the best place for you to start that. It is the place in our church family that is designed for community to be able to develop between people, for these interdependent, interwoven relationships to develop between people. So that is the place to start. That is your first step this morning, if you're not in a home group, to jump into one. Now, I just want to take a few minutes to acknowledge our home group leaders. If you're a home group leader in the room, will you please stand up? All home group leaders in the room, would you please just stand up right there where you are? Just stay standing for just a moment. All of our home group leaders, any more in the room? So just stay, stay standing just where you are, just for a second. Chad Brooks, thank you. Um, so first of all, and we, we have 25 to 30 home groups right now, so there's more than just this. Most of them are probably serving somewhere right now. But I just want to take a moment to publicly thank you for serving our church. I know, Le- yeah. You know, it's no stretch to say that you are the backbone of our church. Like without you, our people would not be cared for like we would want them cared for. So thank you so much for serving. And I know from personal experience the difficulties that come along with leading a home group. Been doing it for a while now with you. And I know that Cruddy Valley is difficult. Hanging in there is difficult. Being patient alongside, all those things are difficult. So I just want to say thank you so, so, so much for helping pastor and shepherd our church. Thank you to our home group leaders. You can have a seat. Now, if you, if you call Stonegate your church home or you're, you know, you're leaning into making this your church home, but you're not in a home group, your first, like your next step, the next step in your journey with Jesus here at Stonegate needs to be finding a home group. So I, I need you to do this for me. Under your seat, you should have um, cards that look like this. These cards. If you are not in a home group right now, but you need to be in a home group right now, If you'll please take that black section of the card out, fill that out, you know, between now and the end of our service. At the end of the service, drop this into the offering basket. And if this is you and you need to pursue a home group, you need to make sure you check the little box on home groups. And Travis and his team will follow up with you this week and help get you connected uh, to our home groups. So if you're not in a home group, that would be your next step would be to find a home group. So pursue home groups. Number two, what does it look like to pursue community? Number two. Pursue friendships. Now, I, I want to do a whole set of sermons on friendships at some point, um, but the, not today, right? So just give me about four more hours and we'd be there. So uh, but let me just say a couple of things about them. I, I read a thing here recently that right now in America, the average person has 0.8 friends. 0.8. That means the average American has less than one friend in their life. And listen, we live in a culture, now hear me on this. This is really important that you get this. We live in a culture that has so devalued friendship that it's a travesty. I mean, if if you just take what Facebook has done with their friend label to the word friend, they have probably devalued the word friend as much as anything in the last two or three decades. Technology, I, I think, is a huge part of this. You know, there's... 
you have just the, the sense of friendship just enough through things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, all these things. You have just kind of the facade of friendship just enough that it actually keeps people from getting the real thing. It's just a travesty of what's happened. Our culture greatly undervalues friends. When is the last time you've ever heard someone say, you know what, I'm not taking this job because I'm just not going to move away from these friends? That I'll, I'll bet you that has never happened. You've never heard a person say that. Our culture assumes, and this is a terrible misunderstanding of friends, our culture assumes that friendships are just interchangeable. You can just kind of go here and you'll find them there. You're just going to go here and you'll find That's not true. Friendships are precious. They are precious. If you've, got a, if you've got a handful of really, really great friends, you should look up at the Lord today and thank him for that. Because that is a precious commodity. So, but here's what I want to encourage you toward is pursuing friendships, actually pursuing friends, like looking at people and saying, or at least thinking, I want to be really good friends with them. Like, I want to get to know them. I want them. Like, I'm going to actually do the hard work of pursuing them. Ask yourself this question right now. Do you have really, really deep, good friendships in your life? Just ask you, just think of your life right now and ask yourself the question. Do I have good, deep friendships in my life? If not, what a great moment for the Lord just to impress upon you that you need good friendships in your life. Hear that. You need good friendships. If you don't have good friendships, you will never thrive the way the Lord would want you to thrive. You'll never flourish as a human being like the Lord would want you to flourish. If you don't have good friendships, man, what a great time to begin that. Um, my... Uh, in between my, my freshman and sophomore year in college was really the, one of the big turning points in my life where I really began to follow Jesus. And I can't even explain why the Lord did this at that moment. But as I was going back into my sophomore year in college, I lived in a fraternity house. And so, I mean, the fraternity house was just like one of those things. I remember my uh, grandpa sitting me down one time and just having that, dude, I think you have fallen off the deep end conversation because I'm in a fraternity house. And looking back, I have a hard time like, faulting him for that conversation. So I'm going back into a fraternity house my sophomore year. And I just remember thinking on the way back to that fraternity house, I have got to make good friendships. Like not the friends that I had, I've got to make a new set of, friend, a new set of friendships. And I remember the Lord just impressing, impressing upon me. You need to find Casey Maddox and you need to let him know that. Some of y'all know Casey. He was here as a church planning resident for a while. We planted him in Lawrence. And man, I cannot tell you the grace from the Lord that friendship has been to me. And, it, and that didn't happen. I didn't just stumble into that. There was this intentional pursuit of that. I sent him a text this, this week telling that I'm talking about friendship. And man, just what a grace from the Lord knowing him for the last 15 years has been for me personally. Like I would not be where I am without that deep friendship. And the Lord has given me a set of those. And listen, if you don't have good friendships... This is a moment for the Lord to impress upon you. You need that, so pursue it. And the best place for you to start is right now thinking about your home group. Who in my home group do I need to look at and say, man, I don't have good friendships right now. I need good friendships and I'd like to pursue that. You need to think about that. You need to be proactive about pursuing it. And lastly, if you want to pursue community, you have to pursue being known. Pursue being known. Part of what it means to be a friend to another person is that you let them know you and they let you know them. 
See, that's part of what it means to be a friend. So if you're a person who will not let people know you, you're also a person who is refusing the grace of God called friendships. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a classic on just community and this sort of thing. Listen to how he says it. And by the way, we're not just talking about friendships and being known in terms of like they know the good part of you, the awesome side of you, but that they also know the broken and, and just beat up and the part of you that needs redemption. That they know the good and the bad. That's what it means to be known. That they know the good and the bad of you. Now listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer describe this. He says, it may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all of their fellowship and service may still be left to their loneliness. So hear what he's saying. He's saying it's not uncommon for a Christian to go to a home group, to come to corporate worship services, to be serving in a church, to do all these things within a church, but yet still be lonely. Listen to what he goes on to say. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because, here's the reason why they're still lonely and yet doing all those things. Because they have because they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people. Now hear this. They do not have fellowship as the undevout or as sinners. So all, all their fellowship revolves around their awesomeness, not their brokenness. And he's saying, if that's how your fellowship and community with people works, you're still going to be lonely. You're never going to not be lonely until you allow people to know both the good and the bad in you. He goes on, so everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners in that sort of an arrangement. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. He goes on to say, the fact is, and this is true of everyone in the room, we're all sinners. Jesus isn't sitting here, right? So we all carry an expectation that you've got sin and are in need of redemption, just like I have sin and I'm in need of redemption. So I want to encourage you, or, or just ask yourself the question, or, not just are you friends with people, but are you known by people? The good and the bad. Like, are there people right now who know the deepest places where you struggle? Are there people who know that? If not, you're not yet in community. If not, you're not yet in the position to be able to thrive and flourish as a human being. And the Lord is inviting you and I into that today. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm going to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. You know, it's, it's interesting. If you just try to summarize the storyline of the Bible, you can summarize it in terms of friendship. So it would be fair to summarize the Bible like this. The Bible begins with a friendship between God and man. That friendship lasts all of two chapters. In the third chapters, our first parents sin against God. And with that sin, our friendship with God absolutely ruptured. And the biggest question the Bible is intending to answer, the big question of the Bible could be framed like this. How will our friendship with God ever be restored? How will that ever, ever be restored? And the answer to that question is found at the cross of Christ. At the cross, the triune God's perfect friendship was ruptured so that our friendship 
with the perfect triune God could be restored. At the cross, the triune God's perfect friendship was ruptured. So that our friendship with the perfect triune God could be restored. If you want a way of summarizing the gospel, in six words, you could do it out of John 15, where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, but I have called you friends. No longer just servants, but I have called you friends. That is the great news of the scriptures. That this triune God of the universe, this perfect God, inexhaustibly full, infinitely happy and blessed, the happy land of the Trinity. He has looked at a broken creation and said, I'll invite you into my happiness. I'll I'll invite you into a friendship. I would love to be friends with you. And the Bible is clear that a friendship with God only comes through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. That's the only way into friendship with the perfect triune God is by throwing your life upon the perfect life of Jesus. By turning from your sin and throwing everything you are upon him. And here's the great news of the scriptures. If right now you are an enemy of God, you could leave this morning from this room being a friend. The arms of God are wide open to that. I love how one of my friends describes the gospel. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus, a friendship with God in Jesus. And anyone can get in on this. Doesn't matter how far you've gone. Doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. God Almighty, his arms are open to you this morning for friendship. And if you've never stepped across that line of faith that leads into friendship with God, then what a wonderful morning for that. If the Lord is pressing upon you there, poking on you there, like this is, this, is the, this is the moment where you can respond and walk into that friendship. And if that's you, please take that card under your seat, the black section of that, fill that out, check the box on how to establish a relationship with Jesus. And man, we would love to celebrate that with you today. And then for those who are in the family of God, your, your, your friendship with God has been established. What's it going to look like for you to proactively pursue community in your life? Where is the Lord pressing there? Are you open with people? Is your life interwoven into a home group where all the one another's in the Bible can be practiced? Be devoted to one another. Forgive one another. Do you have friends? Deep friendships where you're known and They know you, you know them. Father, I pray that you would be at work among us for these ends. Lord, I pray that the sort of community that you would give our church family would be precious, it would be fought for, it would be pursued. Lord, I pray that you would give us the tenacity and the resilience to hang with one another in Cruddy Valley as we make the trek up to Family Mountain. Father, I pray for our home group leaders that you would bless them Lord, that you would bless them. So Father, would you pour out your grace upon us now? It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, 
please visit us at stonegate-church.com.